Welcome to the HR Futures Podcast, brought to you by Expedite HR, the organisation behind Working Futures, the event for HR directors, and the new mobile application, Circal, the only app dedicated to developing and improving the HR profession. This podcast is also brought to you in association with Zealous, the market-leading provider of payroll, HR, and managed services. With me today is uh, Neil Morrison, Neil is the HR Director of Seven Trent PLC, prior to that HR Director at Penguin Random House. Many of you will know him from his blog, Change Effect, and he's a regular on the circuit, so you may well have seen him speak at a conference. Welcome, Neil. Hi, nice to be with you. Great. So, um, tell us a bit about what you're currently doing, you know, the, the organisation, the size of it, um, some of the challenges that you're currently sort of focusing on so yeah seven trend is a water and wastewater business predominantly based in the west midlands serving customers across the east mids west mids we've got a welsh business called hafren dubadoy um, and effectively we employ about six and a half thousand people who work in a variety of different roles um, providing those services to our, our customers and communities Okay, so as a utility, how, how, is it one of the bigger ones? Is it one of the smaller ones? So in terms of comparison to other water companies? Yeah, I mean, we're one of the largest UK water companies. We're a FTSE 100 listed business. So in terms of kind of broad comparison to other businesses, you know, it's a, it's a relatively large size. I guess if you looked at employee size, you know, six and a half thousand mm. isn't the largest organisation. But mm. those, you know those people are doing a really specific kind of work within their local communities. Okay. And sort of what are the sort of big challenges for you at the moment in terms of, and how long have you been there as HR director? So I've been there two years. Two years. So I suppose, what are you currently sort of working on? What are the big things for you from an HR perspective in terms of, you know, the organisation and where it is and where it's going? Yeah. So I guess it's different to a lot of organisations. We work on five-year cycles. So we have a five-year regulatory cycle, um, which is kind of governed by our regulator, um, Ofwat. And we're just at the end of one of those periods going into the next. So you have a, a new uh, business strategy. You have a new funding plan, effectively new performance indicators. And so everything that we're doing at the moment within HR is really looking ahead to the next five years and saying, what do we need to be great at in order to deliver that? Our commitments to both the regulator, to shareholders, but most importantly to our customers and communities. Okay, and and you don't you did quite well at that, didn't you? Your submission. A lot of people got you know their their plans were thrown out. I saw some stuff in the sort of yeah. financial press around that. So, are you, is your plan approved? Are you? We, we were one of three companies to get fast-tracked, so um, uh, along with United Utilities and uh, Southwest Water, Seven Trent with a third. Interestingly, all three listed companies, so there's okay. three FTSE 100 listed companies, were the three that got fast-tracked and, and early approval. And, and some of that, I couldn't quite work out some of the, the rationale behind it. So some of it's to do with shareholding and how money's invested and... And the other piece seemed to be something to do with sort of a, a commitment on leakage or something again. So, so what were the key factors, I suppose, that you you know, in terms of the approval of the plan? What are why did you get approved and others get rejected? 
So the regulator looks at the plan in the rounds. They look at you know your commitments to customers, your commitments in terms of service indicators, your performance uh, historically. They look at how you've engaged with customers to put that plan together. So have you gone out and really listened to the things that are important and reflected those back in? What are your spending plans? Where are you going to invest? Uh, and what's the outcome going to be for the communities that you serve? And they look at that in the round and then say, that's a good plan. It's well thought through. It's well articulated. It's financially well balanced. And if they feel that, you go through. If they feel there's areas that you can improve, it goes back. And there's then yeah. uh, a number of iterations whilst they try to get it to the right place. I remember it well from my days in Royal Mail. Similar process, regulator. We had to get financial approval for all the investments that we needed to make. So I understand the process. Um, and I think it gives people a context of the, you know, that five-year cycle and things. Yeah. So within it, what are the big challenges for HR in the next five years? What are the things you're sort of, you've got your eye on? What are the things that you think you need to do differently from what you've done in the last couple of years? I think one of the big agendas for us over the next five years is really about skills. So how do we create you know, the most skilled talented workforce that exists within the industry how do we help people to learn the new skills we're going to need so when you've got automation coming in you've got different technologies coming in people are going to have to do different jobs or do their jobs in different ways okay and you know with a workforce that is 95 percent from our customer base so people who are our workforce are also our customers are also our shareholders there's a real important uh value for us in making sure that their skills develop and they can progress their careers with us and go on to do those jobs. So we're investing £10 million in a purpose-built training academy which will take will exist within our patch um, and that will train everyone from everything from you know digging holes in grounds, how you fix pipes under pressure, through to using the latest in augmented reality and virtual reality to help people train and learn skills there. So it's... Um, it's a big agenda for us. It's something we're really passionate about. And it's something that I think is not only right for the business, but it's actually really right for our workforce as well. Yeah. And in terms of the, the sort of size of the workforce going forward, presumably broadly the same There's you know, you might, you know, you might have more people over here and less people over there. So the, the work will change presumably and fluctuate during that period. I think the shape of the workforce will definitely change. You know, we know that as technology comes in, there'll be different requirements and different needs. But ultimately, you know, we're about serving customers and serving communities. And so you can only do that well if you've got a really engaged and well-established workforce who are out there every day doing, you know, sometimes some pretty tricky tasks. Yeah, yeah. Good. Okay. So... So we've got an idea on the job you're currently doing. Tell us a bit about, you know, I don't know, why you got into HR in the first place. Let's go right away back to the beginning. You know, planned, I, I, I view HR, I understand it, I want a career there, or did you fall into it? Or, you know, I'm always interested in how people end up in our profession. Um, and then perhaps a, a quick canter through. So some of the different businesses quite different. You know, you've got quite, a, I mean, I think that's really interesting in that you've, you know, a utility at the moment, prior to that publishing, prior to that retail, you know, you most probably got both ends of the spectrum there. So I'm really interested in your take on on that. But let's start off at the beginning. How did you get into HR? So I didn't. I went into personnel because that's mm. what it was called back then. Um, <laughs> so uh, my degree was in psychology um, and uh, I came out of that. And to be honest, wanted to go into work. I didn't want to do any further study. 
And if you were going to progress in, you know, a career in psychology, you needed to do a master's or a doctorate, generally. Um, And I was kind of scratching around thinking, what do I do? Where do I go? Personnel, as it was, was recommended to me uh, as a possibility. There was a a part-time, one-year post-grad course in it. Okay. Uh, Sorry, no, it was full-time, actually, but it it was during the day, um, so I could work at night and kind of a few quid. Um, and I thought, well, I'll do this and see where it takes me. Um, and kind of the rest was the history. So you then end up needing a job. You go into a job, you, you know, and progress on and progress on and progress yeah. on. Um, and I guess it's probably one of the things that's driven how I look at work is from, you know, still from that kind of psychological lens. It, it's very much from a sort of behavioral facet, yeah. from a kind of motivational facet rather than necessarily from a, you know, um, I guess a, a you know a traditional what you might call business or economical Legal, basis. Or, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's interesting, isn't it? Where you know people come to it from a range of different attitudes or views, isn't there? Okay, um, so that's how you got into HR. Now, sort of tell us a little bit about I don't know the differences that you've seen. So HR in a utility, regulated business, HR in retail, HR in publishing. You know, quite different. You know, what's the what are the similarities and what are the differences, I suppose? So, I mean, I've been really lucky to work in a variety of different industries and it's always been quite intentional to move around. Um, and intentional because I think what, what it does is it forces you to really think about where you are and what you're doing rather than just go back to history, go back to memory and say, well, I did yeah. this before and that worked. And I guess being in retail for a long period of my career, quite often I saw people come from other retailers and they'd say, oh, we did this in Sainsbury's, or we did this in Tesco, or we did this in yeah. wherever, you know, you should do that here. And one of the things about moving between industries, it's quite hard to do that because there's, yeah. no, there's no sort of reference point. I mean, broadly, people are people are people. They come to work for the same reasons. Um, they want to go home at the end of the day having felt that they've contributed, have done something that's meaningful, yeah. feeling safe, secure, and well-rewarded for what they're doing. So... so you know, if you like, at the heart of it, it's pretty much the same. I think what's different is maybe the the, the, the kind of backdrop, if you like, the canvas that you're working from yeah. changes from organisation to organisation. Some are more short term, some like Seven Trent, you know, work on longer term cycles. Sure. If I think about uh, Penguin Random House, a lot of people came from the arts and liberal liberal arts into the business um, seven trench, you know, people come from engineering backgrounds. So the way in which people see the world is slightly different, but actually what they're asking of it is broadly the same. Okay. And so it's about how do you tailor your practice? How do you think about what you're doing in a way that's yeah. fitting to the culture that you're in? But ultimately, yeah. you know, if you think about, you know, people want to be paid, you've got to recruit people, you've got to develop people. You've got to engage them, if you like, or create a culture where they feel they can contribute. All of those things are exactly yeah. the same. How about the sort of alignment to, um, you know, the HR stuff to the business? So, you know, there's a lot of things that we can do in HR, you know, it's and sometimes it's about choosing the levers, isn't it? What do we focus on at 7 Trent might be quite different than you did at Random House. So there's a bit about cycles, there's a bit about business drivers, there's a bit about society and all of that sort of stuff. So just sort of explain to us how you, when you're doing a sort of business planning process or people strategy or whatever you may want to call it, because people will call it different stuff. 
making decisions about what we do a lot of and what we do a little bit of, how do you go about sort of thinking about that? Because I think it's the, the thinking bit and the planning bit, I suppose, is a, was an interesting starting point for HR. I think this comes back to my comment about moving industries because one of the things you've got to do is learn exactly what your organisation is, what it does and where it's trying to go. And having to do that from scratch is really helpful. I mean, it's quite hard work, to be totally honest, because you start with a blank page. But by doing that, then you can start to understand exactly the sort of um, capabilities that the organisation needs to be successful. And then you start to work that through and say, okay, if that's true, you know, the phrase I often use is, you know, what's the game we're trying to win here? If we understand the game we're trying to win, then we know the training and the skills that we need in order to be able to win that. Um, So understanding that and then working that back through to, you know, your practice and saying, what are we doing at the moment that's fit for purpose that actually delivers that? And where's the gaps and how do we fill those in? Um, I think it's really, really dangerous to try and do HR in isolation. Yeah, uh, but I suppose the reason I'm sort of labouring this point is I think that's one of our great challenges as a profession. I think we teach it as a set of best practices that should be deployed. And actually, I think it's more about the canvas that you're working on. It's more about, as you said, you know, what are the drivers? What have we got? What's important? What game are we playing? You know, I mean that. You know, so why don't you just give us an example? So the game that you know um, Seven Trent playing in comparison to the game that um, uh, Penguin were were deploying or uh, thinking about deploying when you were there. What's describe the differences? Because I think that really bring most probably will bring it to life. Well, I guess I mean the the, the most. Um uh, sort of most obvious example is around speed of cycle. Yeah. So, so you, you know, Seven Trent works on a five-year cycle, yeah. and therefore you're looking to build something over a longer period of time. Yeah. Um, you know, we are about legacy. We're about the legacy we leave. We're about uh, you know our commitment to communities and intergenerational fairness. So when you talk about jobs okay. and careers and things oh, like yeah, that, yeah, you know, yeah, there's yeah. a slightly different lens to it. Yep. And you can talk about building something over five years and people will get that. Yeah. Whereas if you start to talk to people, you know, maybe in retail about five years, they kind of go, well, we might not even be around in five years. So, so, so that's one specific difference. Yeah. I guess, you know, you have... A difference in geography. So Penguin Random House was London-based. Your London yeah. economy, your London jobs market is very, very different to a regional jobs market. Yeah. So the way in which you attract people, the way in which you retain them is very, very different. Yep. And their expectations of you is quite different. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then you've got things like brand, you know, and what you can do with the brand, um, you know, both... Seven Trent and Penguin Random House are actually quite long existing yeah, brands, but they mean very different things. Yeah. Um, and they stand for de- very different things. And the workforce that you have feel proud of them for very different reasons. And so how you work with that and how you use that is slightly different. But ultimately, you know, it, it does come back to the same thing, which is about, you know, creating good work for people treating them with respect creating cultures that people feel that they can do you know good work and be valuable in and you know driving forward the organizational performance by helping the workforce to deliver that yeah 
Okay. I, I think that's really useful because I think there is this real frustration about what drives people's strategy. And I think you're right. On one hand, there is consistency that we're dealing with people and what, why do they turn up? What do they want to get out of work? And on the other hand, there's different planning cycles, different uh, pressures on the business, different ways in which you know people activity can be organised to be able to deliver for the business. And you know, and also starting with that point about what culture have we got, what have we capabilities have we got, and what do we need in the future is you've got different timescales, I suppose. So I think there's, there's there's something really interesting in that, and I think it's an area where um, you know it's not taught. You know, I look, go back to my CIPDs and talk to young people and we still teach it as this set of skills or a set of capabilities and the context and what's specific to different organisations at different times is is just it, the, 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 there's something missing. And I think, you know, we see it in HR directors and some organisations, but there's a prevailing need for our profession to do something about that for... Yeah. young aspiring HR people really I think one of the big dangers is when we get out of step with our organizations when when our agendas are trying to drive something that just isn't yeah. there yeah and I guess that can either be because you know we need to be somewhere else or it, it can be because we haven't taken the organization on the journey with us yeah but ultimately you know I, I mean I think that this trick about how do we get more strategic so people you know, this yep. how do you get more strategic in the HR? You only get that by truly understanding your organization, feeling it, and therefore being able to anticipate yeah. its future needs, which is ultimately what strategy is about. It is. If you just do it in isolation and you say, you know, I've been to this workshop with PwC or with, you know, Ernst yeah. & Young, or I've just, you know, been to see this presentation on best practice from X, Y, and yep. Z and you bring it into your organization cold and you can't contextualize it then it will never be successful so it has to come from a, a deep kind of intrinsic sense of understanding i'm sort of going to ask you a personal question and say how did you develop that 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 process you know about what questions do i ask how do i really understand my organization what's important you know the difference between what it says and what it does is always quite interesting and and what culture have we got you know so that sort of diagnostic bit you know really starting to understand the organization and all its different facets how did you go about developing that was it something that you did consciously or did you sort of just reflect on them sort of beginning to get quite good at this so how did you develop it there was I, there was one specific moment I can tell you, which was I, it was probably about six months into my career with Random House, as it was before the merger. So, yeah. so, and I was there and had struggled to really get any traction in the first six months in anything I was trying to do, and the HR team were quite frustrated because they felt the same. You know, they tried to do stuff and they couldn't quite get it to to move forward. And I can remember thinking. Right, it feels like I'm trying to swim up river, river here. Yeah, yeah. So I've got a choice, you know. I, I can keep on doing that and get frustrated and keep on getting beaten back by, by the flow of water. Or I can turn around and flow with the river and, and, and see where it takes me. And, and, and there was a very, very kind of, it was quite late at night. I was in the office and I thought, I'm just going to actually start to rethink what I'm trying to do and say, how do you 
go with an organisation and tailor it yeah. as you go rather than try and force it to be something that it isn't. And that meant, you know, in that organisation, thinking about really creative ways of delivering uh, some of the kind of yeah. traditional HR interventions, thinking about the language you use and the branding you use and being a bit, you know, a bit probably wacky, some would consider, versus... Yeah, yeah. The, the kind of traditional interventions. But what we found over time was actually, you know, that created a men- momentum where people said, oh, God, that, that's okay, that's delivering something. Yeah. And we, we talked about this pushing on open doors. You know, stop oh, okay. pushing on closed doors, yeah, pushing yeah, yeah. an open one. If someone wants something, go and do that. Because that builds up the energy, the momentum, the confidence in you. I like that. And then you see more doors opening. Whereas if you're constantly pushing, saying, you know, open this, open this, do this, do this, do that. And people aren't ready for it. They'll just mm-hmm. resist. I think that's great. I mean, I think there's definitely something about asking questions and really listening, isn't there? You know, I think, I think that is a, you know, if you really, to understand an organisation and understand where people are and their concerns and their issues and trying to find open doors. You have to ask some really open general questions and really listen and then adapt and change and provide solutions to where people are and what they want to do. And you start from where you are. And that's the most important thing, you know, and it doesn't matter whether that's really basic or really advanced. You start from where you are. That's the environment you've Inhabiting that's the environment you're you're responsible, you're caretaking for, and so as an HR professional, you need to be really mindful of that and look to build it. So if you had a you know a, a student come to you who wanted to learn a foreign language, you know, and they had some basic knowledge, you'd start with that and build from it. Yeah, yeah. You know, if they were advanced, you'd work on advanced level. If they didn't know anything, you wouldn't just start shouting at them. In a, you know, you start yeah, yeah. with basic skills. And that's very, very similar. You've got to understand the maturity of the model that you're in and really work to, to, to move it forward from there. And it doesn't matter what you know, externally people are telling yeah. you you should be doing or shouldn't be doing. It doesn't matter. You know, they talk about couch to 5K is one of the big things in fitness, you know, which is this sense of helping people to get over the fear of yeah. getting active. You know, it's really similar with organizational cultures. If people are in one place go to where they are and encourage them to move forward don't stand somewhere else and tell them they should be there yeah okay get that um i suppose just a question on that about how do you develop that you know so you've got you've got a decent hr team here you had a a good one certainly a, a penguin random house how do you develop that capability in hr or is it so is a you know the is it a nurture nature thing? Does some people just get it? Do you see people that you go, actually, they, you know, you ask some questions, they sort of get that, you know, and others that perhaps don't, uh, and perhaps, you know, even through coaching and development, never quite get where we want them to. So I suppose the question is, how do you sort of assess for that, and how do you develop people in some of that thinking and approach? So I think the nature nurture, it's a bit of both, to be totally honest. So, what I often see with HR professionals is they've been in a system that has incentivized and driven some kind of behavior. And when you take them out of the system, they, they struggle a little bit because they want to do that. Yes. Um, so they've been driven to justify their worth and they justify their worth through policy or process or you know control. And you start to say, well, actually, that's not, 
you know, that's yeah, yeah. not the way it's going to work here. You're going to work through influence, through engagement, through conversations and relationships. And that can be quite hard. Some people really, you know, work incredibly well. They, they lap it up. They love it. Other people find it quite difficult um, and might decide that, you know, that's yeah. not the organization f- for them. I've got a great, you know, story of a, a, of a, a guy who came to work for me who'd come from a big retailer. He came to work for me at Penguin Random House. And he said, I absolutely hated you for the first six months because every time I came with a problem, you'd say, well, what do you think? And all my training had been, what's the written answer? What's the policy? What's the process? You know, and you were asking me what I thought to use my judgment. And, you know, that I, I, it really frustrated me because I thought, well, there's got to be a right answer and a wrong answer. Six months later, he said, you know, I absolutely love it because I'm getting to use my brain. I'm thinking about the right thing. And, you know, some people like it, some people don't like it. Um, And there's this fear of, you know, kind of precedent. If we do that, it's going to set a precedent for everyone else. Well, you know, actually, if we don't do it, we're going to frustrate (laughs) people. We're going to wind them up. You know, we're going to treat them as an amalgamous mass. So I think you, you do nurture it. But I think some people... You know, are, are more um, more welcoming to that approach. They prefer it. They like it, and they can deal with the ambiguity that it brings uh, yeah. a little bit better. I, I sort of change track slightly, but I, I suppose I was keen to give the opportunity to to look back and reflect. I mean, I think it's one of the great thing about podcasts. And I suppose the first one is just to reflect on something you're really proud of, something you've done in your career where you think. That had an impact. It may be an impact on business performance, might be an impact on people's lives, how people perceive themselves, whatever. I'm just always interested in it. And then we must probably go the other side and say, you know, when you look back, something that if you had the chance again, perhaps you wouldn't do it. There was some learning in failure. And, and sometimes that's to be welcome. I think one of the great things about HR is we don't fail enough, actually. We don't try stuff and go, actually, that doesn't work. So let's try something else. Nothing wrong with that. You know, we try to be perfect and get it right first time every time. And no one does that. So tell us a bit about something you're really proud of in your career, something you look back on with, you know, that was significant. I think, I mean, I think the answer to both probably is there are a myriad of small moments where you just think, actually, that that feels really great. Or you might look back and go, I, I called that wrong. Yep. You know, I, th- I think the the... There are bigger things, which I think is probably what you're, you, yeah. you're probably getting at, where you go, actually, that felt like a real success, organisationally. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, there is no doubt that the merger of Penguin and Random House is something that I feel personally very proud of. And, you know, along with Tom Weldon, who was the CEO in the UK, you know, I feel we actually did a piece of work that, you know, I look back on and say that was really good work if you look at the statistics of about mergers and acquisitions and you know the relative success and failure of them actually to create something that has gone on from success to success to success i think is pretty unique and to do it in a really culturally um kind of valuable and and um culturally um positive way is a piece of work that I look back and and draw strength from in, you know, maybe difficult times because it didn't always feel like that when you're going through it. When you're in the messy bit, it doesn't quite feel like that, does it? So so tell us about um, what you think you did or what you know what you did, but what did you do that you think made it successful? 
and perhaps is different than other people would have dealt with a merger or a, an integration? I think what we paid attention to were the cultural facets as well as the you know, transactional integration you know, process-based yeah. aspects. So, so much of leadership time when you're merging business is about the P&L, it's about, you know, systems, Synergy, integration, it's, syngi- you know, it's all of the bits that you have to deliver. But we paid attention at the same time as well as that to how do you bring people together? How do you create a sense of identity purpose? How do you help people to feel part of something and recognize the honest conversations that you need to have in that? So we can't stay in the past. You know, the decision has been taken. That we are ma- it's going to happen. That we are merging these businesses, so we have to move on. Being really honest with people about that, but we can create something good from this, something better. We can deal with long-standing issues and and, and fix them. Um, we can create a platform for the future that we can you know yeah, be yeah. proud of you know in ten years, fifteen years time. And 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 being mindful of both, I think was was the real success. And so you know, I mean, obviously you had a good. Uh, a chief exec and a, a good leadership team that took that and ran with it. Um, so how did you have those conversations, those adult conversations, being quite open, mature, but also recognising the world was going to be different? You know, was that just lots of one-on-one conversations? Did you do group stuff? Did you do organisational Why? You might have done all of it. But again, I think it's a... I, I'm always looking for practical stories. Some people say, actually, that's really important. There is something in there that we need to think about. So your phrase was, how did you have those conversations? And the first important point is to actually have the conversations because too often people don't have them. They know they need to, but they put them aside because they're difficult, they're messy, they're emotional, they're ugly. You end up, you know, with different points of views. You often don't end up with an answer, just a lot of noise and emotion. And it's being okay with that, recognizing that the process is as important as the outcome, helping yes. people to go through that. So some of that was in groups, some of that was around the executive table, some of it was individually outside of those and letting people express and you know fears, worries. It, it's about just recognizing that you know anything that that is worthwhile doing takes time and is hard and can be painful. Yeah, but you get to the other end. And people need to come along with you. And, and again, in that process, you know, when you were talking to the chief exec, when you know clearly you were going to go through this process, um, did they get it? Did you have to convince them of this approach? Did you? Do you know what I mean? Because I think it, I, I think it's absolutely the right thing to do, and you can see the value of it once you come out the other side. But when you're going into it, the pressure to deliver, the pressure to get drive it quickly, to get the savings, to get the value, to sort out the teams, to make decisions about who gets jobs. It's its relentless, isn't it? You get into that really cycle. So, and what you're describing, I think, is take time, listen, have lots of conversations, reflect on it, think, go again, let people be emotional, let them talk about all the things they're worried about, the concerns. And, and I think that's absolutely right. So I suppose I'm sort of saying so. How did you convince the business to do that at the beginning before they saw? I mean, if they're doing it again now, they do it again because they see the value. But when you're going into it for the first time, it's a sort of leap of faith, isn't it? it yeah, it is. I mean, Tom Tom Weldon, who's the CEO there, is actually the only CEO I've never chosen to work for because 
you know, he came from Penguin. I came from Random House. We worked together, you, you know, we, we were put together, if you like. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that was absolutely fantastic is we discovered a lot of similarity about how we saw the world, how we believed organizations should be. Um, I brought, if you like, the, the skills of how you make it happen. He brought the belief and the leadership to say, I'm going to give you the space to be able to do yeah. that. And so it was, a, it was a very, you know, uh, a lucky, if you like, combination. Um, you know, that's not to say that there weren't differences of opinions oh, at times no, or absolutely. moments, but I think... Philosophically, I, you were sort of in a broad, similar place. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so that allowed us to, to be able to put this piece of work forward. I think what it, what I would say is, you know, my, my move to Seven Trent was very much about seeing a CEO that I said that I thought actually has a similar view of the world to me as well. And I think quite often we don't we don't do that well enough no. as practice, practitioners. Is saying it's really important to me that I work for someone well, yeah. that I have a shared belief, uh, yeah. a shared set of beliefs with. I think one of the things you get all the time in HR events, when you talk to HR people, they go, you know, I'm doing this and we're doing that, but leaders don't get it. And I just go, well, why are you working there then? It's bloody pointless. It really doesn't work. Absolutely. And, and, and you know, you have to be discerning about it yeah. if you want to do really good practice and really good work. You know, and that doesn't mean that you don't have to influence people and you don't no. have to move them and you don't have to shape them and you don't come up against things where maybe you'll see a different opinion and learn from it as well. It's not about kind of just making it easy. No. But you've got to not have enough shared sense of common purpose to yeah. say, actually, we can create an agenda together yeah. that's worthwhile delivering. Okay, we're going to take a break now. We'll be back for the second half of the HR Futures podcast with Neil Morrison from Seven Trent. And the second half, we're going to explore a little bit about the HR profession and his view on where we are. We'll most probably talk about technology and we'll also get to talk a little bit about Neil the Man and what he does outside of work. So back in a moment. Are you looking to reduce risks and operating costs? Or increase your agility and capacity? There's more pressure than ever for HR and finance to provide strategic value for the business and for CEOs. At Zealous, our expert team creates software and managed services that handle your entire payroll and HR admin processes. We believe there are two sides to the employee experience. The fundamentals that need to go unnoticed and experiences that employees really care about. And we can help you master both. We're here to make the complex simple freeing you up to focus on your people and achieve your goals. Find out more at zealous.com. Welcome back to the second part of HR Futures podcast. With me today is Neil Morrison. Uh, I think we had a really interesting conversation in the first half of the podcast around um, uh, what, you know how to work with businesses, how HR can influence and create great strategy or um, plans that deliver value. In the second half, I'm gonna, we're going to explore a few different things, but I'd like to start off, Neil, by just telling you a bit of, you know, or asking you to think about reflecting on things that perhaps haven't gone so well in your career from a perspective not of, you know, is it right or wrong, because it's most probably never right or wrong. Perhaps it's the wrong time or the wrong intervention in the wrong way or whatever. But I think it's that moment of accepting that sometimes we get stuff wrong and we, as long as we learn from it, that's fine. So 
is there any sort of stories or things that you can think about where you go, yeah, perhaps that didn't land as I would like? Yeah, I mean, I guess the first thing I'd say is that, you know, pretty much every day I analyse what I've done during that day. You, you focus on what went well, what didn't go well, how you would have handled situations differently. I mean, it's just a, a natural part of my facet that you, you know, I, I look at what I could have done better. And that's not... Um, I guess uh, necessarily an intentional thing. It's just a, a part of my makeup that you think back to conversations or where you've handled, you know, particular scenarios or maybe you know something that you've presented or said mm. or written, and you kind of go, "Oh God, you know, if only I'd thought about that at that time." Uh, I guess you know each of those bits. I think it helps you to be a better practitioner. You know, there are probably moments in my life that I look back now and say, God, that was a really wrong judgment call. You know, that's a, a piece of work that I delivered that just wasn't right. You know, but ultimately it was right at the time. It was right based on the evidence that I had. It was, you know, it was done with best intentions. The yes. moments that really yeah, yeah. get me is when I feel that I've acted against my moral compass, you know, where I've done something that I probably wouldn't have done um, or wouldn't have consciously, intentionally done if I'd reflected on my value set. And, you know, those could be, for example, you know, there have been people where maybe I know we've managed out an individual during my career or you know, where there's been a situation with a trade union or something. And I've, I've gone back and, you, you know, the things that trouble me that keep me up at night are still maybe 5, 10, 15 years ago when I go, actually, I didn't act in the way that I believe I should be holding myself to account personally on. And those are the ones that I think, you know, that, that, that I learn from the most because they make you hold yourself to account in even greater kind of strength every day. Mm. How do you create a sort of a, a process for yourself where you you test your thinking, you test what you're going to be doing in the next day, the next month, the next few months around that bit? So this is the plan, this is what we're going to do with that individual, that part of the organisation, that union. You know, how do you tune into that? How do you test that before you deploy it? So you, you're reflecting on previous experience when you've been a bit off skew or a bit. I mean, it's no doubt it, it's easier as you get more senior because when, when you're more junior, you tend to get into the flow of the organisation and you end up enacting stuff that, yeah. you, you, you know, you probably feel you have little choice about. You know, I'm trying to create a culture in my organisation where people do have choice and they can push back and say I don't think this is the right thing to do but probably you know if I think back to myself 5, 10, 15 years ago I probably didn't feel I had a chance to okay. question the machine Yeah. and so you end up doing some stuff that you maybe go oh that's wrong so I think it's about creating cultures where people feel able to raise concerns and discuss concerns is this the right way to treat that person is this the right thing to do from a culture and values point of view within the organisation? And, and if you can do that, then it's not just about you doing it individually. It's about creating a system where people all ch challenge each other. Cool. I like that. I think that that's valuable stuff, Neil. So 
Let's just sort of step aside from organisations and just look at our profession. So um, I think there has been progress over the last 10, 15 years. I know we've talked about this on previous occasions and I've seen what you have to say, but I think the opportunity is still as far away from us. The opportunity to add more value, to be more significant, to help organisations do you know, create good work and brilliant cultures. Um, what do you think our failing is? What do you think the things that we're not getting right from an HR perspective that we really need to adapt, change, modify over the next few years? I still think there's a there's a lack of commonality of understanding about why HR exists, why we are in organisations, the value we add, why why we show up each day and go to work so if your belief is that it's about you know people complying with your processes or policies if you believe it's about you know process and administration and following you know a a policy then you show up in one way if you believe it's about driving performance in organization if it's about facilitating great outcomes if it's about being the you know, the bastions of organisational culture, then you show up in a different way. And I still think that that, that is uh, unclear in, uh, you know, consistently across the profession about why we're there. Mm. And, and I think there is a big gap between some of the larger headline statements that we might make and how that actually manifests itself to an HR assistant or an HR advisor or someone just taking their first steps into the profession. How do I make that real? Yeah. You know, if you talk about better work and better working lives, which is, you know, the, yeah, yeah. the, the mission of the CIPD, which I totally buy into, you know, but what does that actually mean for someone making a decision right here, right now? And that's where HR directors, leaders in HR need to be better I think interpreting that and setting a direction within their organisations that helps people to understand. Because if you can do that, then people self-select whether they want to be part of it or whether they don't want to be part of it. You're right. I think there's some stuff. I mean, I think there's a couple of bits that are interesting. I'm still not convinced we get the brightest and the best from organisations into HR. And I think that's a challenge. And I think there is this bit about, you know, just how it's taught the early part of people's careers. It is still, I think, in the, the, the latter rather than the former, you know, era. this is employment law, this is, you know, employee relations, these are our, th- you know, they're sort of quite fixed, aren't they? And and I think what we have to then do is, and you can see great HR directors, and there's been many on these podcasts, which are talking in the language which is similar to you, which is we're sort of having to retrofit it you know we're having to retrofit hr really and and the people within it and the approach and the mindset so we can do what we really think and 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 that seems quite odd i think you know as a profession that we haven't got a common view of how you should do this stuff but the flip side to that so, so so i kind of disagree with you on this i think i think the flip side to that is you end up with lots of people coming out of hr school thinking that they're going to be delivering big strategic programs and you're not so so let me give you a, a kind yeah, of par- let, me, let me give you a parallel so if you look at a michelin star chef they still will know food hygiene they'll still know safety standards they'll still know knife work they'll still know all of the basics but they recognize that it's a stepping stone towards a higher mastery 
And I think the problem is we don't see those basics employment law process as being just a stepping stone towards higher mastery. And it's as important that people know them. So, So I see two things within the profession. I see people who either see it as the end goal, you know, I've done it and that's all I need to do. Or you see people who disregard it and don't think it's important, yeah, and that's okay. equally as dangerous. Yeah. Okay. So, so, so you know, in order to be a Michelin starred chef, you still need to know how to julienne carrots, right? It, it's important. Yeah, I, I don't disagree actually. So I think I, so. I think the difference is it's the philosophy and why are we here to do this? So I think you do have to learn the basic right. fundamentals, but it's about. We're here to create great, you know, so it's a Michelin style. We're here to create wonderful eating experiences. And I think if you can articulate HR, it'll be about great work, great cultures, you know, great places to work. And, you know, you have to understand the fundamentals. You want to keep people safe. So people have to understand health and safety. We want to recruit people. There's basics in there. There's basics in training. So I agree with you. I think it's, for me, the bit that's missing is the overall philosophy of how you do this stuff you do need the basic fundamental skills and capabilities to deploy stuff, particularly early in your career. Totally. You still need to clean the pots, right? And it's just a part of what we do. So if I didn't pay my organisation, but I delivered them a brilliant employee engagement strategy, I'd know about it pretty damn quickly. And the importance is that we can do all of these pieces in a culturally fitting way. And I think you're right. I think the difference between really great practitioners is that they know enough about the detail so that they can be all over that and drive the operational performance. But they also have the flair, the insight, the intuition, the vision, the strategy, if you like, to focus on the high-level stuff as well. Yeah. But ultimately, you know, it's not either or. It's also and. It's bad and. And and so, you know, should we expect people to come out of the CIPD qualification or out of a T-level, you know, with more... Probably not. I don't believe we should. They should be learning that in the workplace. But the problem is there aren't enough good quality practitioners further up the chain who are bringing people in and helping them to unleash that. And I think that's changing. I I really do do. think it's changing. I I think it is. But for me, I think the opportunity is getting greater. I think organisations intellectually are beginning to understand the thing that we've been saying to them for a long time, that the value really does come from people and unleashing that potential. Um, and there are lots of organisations doing fantastic stuff. I, I, I just think the opportunity, I think we're behind the line. And, and this might be me being very critical of our profession, but some of it's fair and some of it may not be. But I do think there's the opportunity to do what you've talked about on scale is the bit that I'm interested in. So I don't know if that is the role of the CIPD or it is the role of great HR leaders. It's most probably both to be able to speed up that transformation process, the bit about the philosophy and how we do this stuff and the difference we can make and isn't just about doing the eight bits of great practice will get you there. Um, so that's my challenge, I think. That's what I'm interested in. And I think it's, it's, we're at a point in time, do you know what I mean? I think we're at a tipping point. We're close to a tipping point of, of things changing. Your but take on that? But I, I, I think we're kidding ourselves if we think that uniformly... UK PLC or, 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 you know, US PLC organisations want great places to work. I think they, they talk the rhetoric, but actually when it comes to the decision-making points, you know, they, they, it's not always there. Yeah. And therefore, you know, the HR practitioner is left in a place where 
on one hand, we want two things to be true. We want to say that we're creating great cultures and great working environments. But on the other hand, you know, we want insecurity of hours, the lowest possible hourly rates. We want, you know, productivity from our workforce by measuring them from every 30 seconds. You know, we want both things to be true. And I think, you know, there's an honesty that we need to have. I think there is. That says, actually, you know, let's be clear about what we are trying to create. And I, and I guess good HR practitioners as well are able to have that debate and create that debate and say, let's not say one thing if our actions are driving yeah. another thing. Yeah, I get, I get you on that, Neil. I think, uh, I think what's interesting, though, is, you know, even, you know, Partly it's where you choose to work and deploy your experiences and skills. So if you're in an organization that you know just wants to, to get to the lowest common denominator, well then that's interesting. The question I think that's that perhaps is interesting, which is winning the argument and proving that you know you take people with you, you engage them, you have good leaders, good management, good cultures, actually you do deliver superior results over time. And um that's the debate, isn't it? Well, it is, and it's about the businesses that are doing great things being championed. The ones that really are doing great things, not the ones that talk a good talk. No, I agree with that. And, yeah, and, I, agree with that. and I think there's a, there's a difficulty in what we're doing. So, so to give you an example, I mean, our average length of service is something like nine years. So you don't stay in an organisation like Seven Trent for nine years unless you've got a really good job and you're really enjoying it. You know, our investment in skills, 10 million quid's worth of investment in skills. You know, we shed more of our profits over the last three years than John Lewis did. So, you know, with employees, that is not... uh, So, you you know, you have these organisations that are doing good things. I think sometimes we fetishise the the shiny, the new, the... Yeah, I do. And it's back to your point about, you know, best practice and case studies. But if you do good things, you get right results, don't you? Isn't that... You know, there might be a belief, it might be a philosophy, but if you treat people well, you have great teams, you have great cultures, then, you know, you deliver great results. Isn't that, you know, the philosophy that we believe in? You know, so if someone says something, you know, we've got a great culture and actually wander around and they haven't, then they ain't going to deliver great things. Well, it depends over what time period you're looking at. And again, I think, you know, this is one of the things that we've got an issue with in commercial Britain is that we look at very short time periods and and we we value performance in the short term, not performance in the long term. And again, you know, that's one of the things I think about 7 Trent that I really like is that we're targeted with delivering over five years. Yeah, nice. So... You know, judge us on our performance over five years. And the reason we were fast-tracked is we've got pretty good performance over the last five years. So, you know, we've got to get away from... Because you can drive seemingly performance improvements in short term... Yes, okay. ...without creating long-term value. And I guess it's about being really clear about the difference in that. Okay. Um, Let's sort of talk a a little bit about um, AI and technology and automation, because clearly we're on a cusp of some kind of change happening. You know, it's been talked about since 2015 and uh, the book, The Rise of the Robots. And clearly, you know, you pick up every kind of business magazine, anything, you know, automation, machine learning, and you start to seeing it being deployed. I suppose the question is, what does HR need to be doing to get in front of that to be able to help organisations adapt and change and use the advantage of 
fantastic technology while also you know retaining the human uh, connection and skilling people and creating good work you know we have to so but we need to do it in you know going back to the long-term stuff you've got to be in front of this stuff you know if it hits you and all of a sudden someone deploys something and it goes shit we've got to make lots of people redundant then you ain't got a lot of chance of being able to deal with it in that situation so how do we what's hr's role in this sort of change that's coming and you know what are you doing at seven trent and what do you think hr should be doing more generally to get in front of some of this disruption and organizational change that's coming so i think i think to start with you've got to understand the technologies and you've got to understand the maturity of the technologies not the tomorrow's world-esque you know we're all going to be in in flying cars by 1985 or whatever it was i watched when i was a kid you know really genuinely where's the maturity of each of these things and what they're what are they likely to be doing in my workplace yeah um, and once you can do that, it's very similar to any other part of your people's strategy is understanding what's the impact going to be and what do I need to do to try and make the most of that in terms of my organisational performance. Uh, i give you two really lovely examples from Seven Trends. So one of which is around virtual reality. So we're starting to use training, um, uh, virtual reality in our training to simulate highly dangerous environments so working in confined spaces, working yeah. at height, you know, you can drop off the scaffolding in virtual reality and be okay. In a normal training environment, we can't let you do that because, you know, obviously it's quite bad for, for, for you know, a, a whole series of different reasons. So being able to harness the technology and being able to use that in the workplace is really, really important for us. Yep. So that's one example. The other one is a, a use of drones. So we have a drone team and we use our drones to survey our buildings so they can fly up mm. where we'd previously have to put scaffolding up. We'd have to get people working at heights. They'd have to go up and ex- inspect to see whether there's a yeah. problem. If there's no problem, they come back down, the scaffolding comes back down really high cost our drone teams can fly a drone round and survey it without putting the scaffolding without putting anyone at risk now that drone team came from an employee idea of an employee saying i think we could be doing this within the organization they worked in technology they came out of our technology team to be the first drone pilot they then hired a bunch of people from across the organization who were all now drone pilots nice. and have been reskilled into a new area of technology that exists within our organization. Yeah. Didn't exist before. That's the backing in terms of the belief. Yeah. It's the understanding in terms of what it's going to do for us. And it's the support in terms of investment and skills that allows you to make the most of it. So, And I get that. And I think they're, they're really good examples. I suppose... And this is where the fear, and it is a bit about, you know, creating concern and fears for people, which is, you know, large-scale automation of process, shall we say, where, you know, jobs aren't going to be needed, you know, perhaps in call centres or whatever, we can automate lots of this. And perhaps on that sort of more negative change, I mean, the innovation's fantastic. Here's a new job. You've got 10 drone pilots now that we didn't have. Isn't that fantastic? You know, really rewarding work. So how do you deal with a sort of potential disruption where it could lead to redundancies or skills being redundant? Um, is there things that you can see that sort of imminently going to happen within your business that you're going to have to get in front of? So we're using robotic process automation already within our organisation. So that might be in billing, that might be in finance, a number of different areas yeah. where we can use it 
to make a, an existing manual process which was relatively high error rate low interest rate and and put a a robot through it that can look at it and, and actually start to get higher accuracy and of course robots don't get bored what that's allowed us to do is to be able to use the time that was spent on that and higher value task and so you know if you looked at a total quantum of of jobs you know it's hard to know whether something like that across an industry will reduce jobs but I think what it can do is create more meaningful jobs and, and, and higher value jobs for people if we choose to make it so. If we choose to use it just as a cost-saving productivity initiative, then that's the result we'll get. And I think this comes back to, you know, what are you measuring corporates on? What are you measuring organisations? Yeah. What's your belief about what you're there to do? And I also think it's about, you know, where we started this conversation. It's about looking to the future, isn't it? And, um, you know, as you said, being aware of the practical applications of the technology well in advance of having to deploy it and then manage the risk. Because, you know, if you think, well, we're likely to deploy this robotic stuff, it's going to save us lots of, you know, jobs or time in finance or operations, then, you know, if we know that's coming in two years, we can think about, well, what are the other value-adding stuff we're getting where we can train people to do really positive stuff and reinvest? If we leave it to the last minute and it gets deployed and then we're going, well, we ain't got time to retrain these people that are of no use to us in the short term, so we end up making quite... So I think it's that bit about anticipating, planning, listening, asking the questions and getting in front of stuff it's hugely important otherwise we end up with the with the lose-lose rather than the win-win totally agree and i think you know let's not forget we used to have typing pools yeah yeah yeah. knock us up that's always my story uh right so um let's tell us why don't you give us the opportunity to to find out a bit more about you neil tell us a bit more about what you do outside of work you know we all spend a lot of time doing this stuff what we do as a day job but you know we have families and hobbies and interests and passions and i'm always keen to find out what people do away from their job so sure yeah i, I mean i've got two kids a 19 year old and a 17 year old so you know they take up a fair amount of time outside either at university or so my son's at university studying economics um, okay. my daughter's just finished her first year of a level so she'll go into second year of a levels okay. um uh, coming up um, so you know we're an incredibly tight family very close so I spend a lot of time with them and enjoy spending time with them yeah you know we're um, Northampton Saints uh, rugby oh. union fans so we're season ticket holders go down there uh, in season you know my son is a is an Arsenal fan yeah. so so spend some time with him at the games <laughs> as well um, you know I, get, I guess more personally I love cooking so oh. cooking is one of my passions Um Hence my Julian and no, carrots it's and it's knife skills. and yeah. Um, but also, you know, growing vegetables. So I, t- I try and grow and then cook with it. So there's a kind of a bit of a sort of production yeah. and then utilisation of it. Um, and then I guess, music, theatre? Yeah. Th- so I'm a member at the National Theatre in London and I love going there. I think it's one of the fantastic, you know, kind of aspects that I really enjoy coming out yeah. of publishing that kind of connection with the creative yeah. industries who are absolute powerhouses within our economy and we don't realise it and they are so fundamentally you know mm. important parts and then I've just done my first ultra marathon um, which yeah. I did in uh, May 
Um, and what's that about now? What's an, uh, you know, what, how did you get into that? So, so the one I was doing was particularly to raise money. Yeah, so so it was, um, raise money for uh, the Brain Tumor Charity. Um, so it was a 66-mile um, uh, challenge around the coast of the Isle of Wight. Um, I'm planning on doing another one uh, in September. So slowly, and again, slowly. To, to, to specifically to raise money, so is it the... You know the aspect of you know raising money to do good work, or is it actually? I quite enjoy the pain and the pleasure of doing some kind of event that tests your own stamina and endurance. Yeah. So the first one was very much about raising money. The second one is more about the latter. It's actually that was quite good fun, um, and I quite enjoyed that. Um, and so it's that that kind of question about what would it be like to do another one? You know, how would that feel in a different environment? You know, and and just that sense of, I guess, um, you, you know, uh, belonging. Quite, yeah. quite. You weirdly, you know, when people are competing in something like that, they compete together. All even though it's individual, you, there is that sense of identity and belonging, which is yeah. quite enjoyable and quite fun. Tell us a bit about the charity and and, and why you raise money for the tumor charity. Yeah, so so sadly, my mum passed away uh, in November last year from a brain tumour. Um, it was about this time last year she, she fell ill. She was uh, incredibly fit and healthy. Um, and sadly, it was untreatable. And, and by November, she'd passed away and died. And I guess I hadn't really thought too much about um, brain tumours, you know, up until yeah. that point, one of my team, uh, her husband, also had a, a brain tumour. Um, and fortunately, that was treated Treatable. and he's made a, a, a full recovery. But all of a sudden, I was thrown into this world of just understanding about yeah. you know, um, this issue. And particularly, it's prevalent in young people, which I wasn't aware yeah. of. Um, and so the Brain Tumour Charity do brilliant work in terms of supporting research into the causes yeah. and cures. Uh, and so uh, my daughter and I did this ultra marathon together, and we raised uh, it's about four thousand pounds for um, uh, for the brain tumor charity. So yeah, a really great cause. And you're going to keep raising money for it? We are, yeah. We, we are not with this next ultra marathon, but I think because you you kind of tapping up the same people, they get a little bit fed up yeah. with you. I need to give it a year or so and come yeah. back for it. But it's very much a, a, a lovely way for me of doing something in mum's memory, something positive in mum's memory. Uh, and something that I think she'd probably think was a pretty good thing to be doing. Fantastic. Thank you for spending the time with us, Neil. As always, I've enjoyed the conversation. Um, lots of great insight, lots of great stories, um, and I think a shared passion for helping our profession move on to the next level. So thank you for spending the time with us. Thank you for having me.